to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 14. Now this is a, this is a standard chapter in Paul's writings. Uh, a beautiful way to begin his epistle here. And this, this is, uh, these are strong words. If you've ever read Paul before, you know Paul is, uh, in some respects, <laughs> uh, very difficult to, to follow. He's got a lot to say in a little bit of time. Whereas, you can read many psalms and it's said two or three things. Whereas, you read five verses of Paul and he said 55 things um, that, are, that are groundbreaking theologically. Let's begin reading here in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ." as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are the incarnate Word. Lord, now bless this reading, preaching, and our response to these words that we've read now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you well know, you live in a certain period of history. Uh, you actually live in a certain generation even within that history. Uh, you have the boomer generation where they had lots of babies. And there apparently was a tapering off. Uh, and now there's maybe an upsurge for some of us now, we feel, of, of more babies. Uh, there's Generation X, as they've been called. Or you could classify it more like what the philosophers do and call it postmodernism or modernism still. Uh, either way you do it, we live at a particular point in history, and we all have a particular history ourselves within that own 
history. So we may not make it into the history books, and yet our family has its own history. And Jesus, when He comes, in the flesh, comes into a particular history. The first century, where we, again, have defined all time from that point on. Again, I was born in 1981, and that means 1981 years after the coming of Jesus Christ. He comes into our time, into our space, and becomes one of us in order to destroy the works of the devil and to save us. It's like an artist weaving himself into the painting that we've botched. You know, I guess you've seen the guy with the, with the bush on his head. I often think of Bo as having that same type of bush sometimes in the morning. Uh, that paints, right? Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Ross, he may be passed away at this point, but he's kind of known for his hairdo, right? A very 80s type hairdo. Uh, he would be painting along, <clears throat> I'm saying, this thing's going to be a disaster. I don't see anything emerging. And all of a sudden he starts to, to, to use a couple more colors, to merge a couple more colors, and all of a sudden this beautiful painting that, that I'd want to hang on my wall. God looks at our canvas, the canvas of our soul, and we've, we've botched it. You know, we've really made a work of it. We, we thought we were doing well, and we, we, we paint like Frank colors. <laughs> you know, most of us. Outside of the lines, we're not using the right colors. Dolphins are red. You know, he, he colored last week uh, the Good Samaritan, and he said the whole thing was red. The entire painting was red. And he said, Mama, that's because his knee was bleeding. Apparently was bleeding profusely. That's our work. We have made a disaster sometimes of our situation, of our life. We've, we've expended all the colors and all we've come up with is darkness. You know, when you mix all the colors, you get black. This black darkness color. That's what our life has become. And yet... The artist, the master artist himself comes into our painting in order to change it. And that's the only way our lives can be changed, our histories can be altered, is if that one artist who is God comes in and starts working. We're not going to be able to dig ourselves out of this one. And that's good news. That's what we proclaim. In Epiphany, that's what we're talking about, is His appearing. What it means for us. It means good things for our painting. It means that no matter how bad we've you know, gone outside the lines, no matter how many dumb colors we decided on, He can come in and He can work it into something absolutely beautiful. A masterpiece. If we'll let Him. And that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians in so many words. He's saying God has a plan in place if we will participate in that plan. There's some contention if you know much about the theological discussions surrounding Ephesians 1. 
we have our brothers of the same faith, Christianity, that differ on the interpretation of this passage. Some would see it as, this is all God's doing. We don't have a part. He just does it. To some people, He paints something beautiful. To others, He doesn't. And they're damned to hell. That's one way of looking at it. One way. The other way would to say, well, the emphasis is all on you. God has given us the tools. We ought to be able to make something beautiful of it. It's all on you. It's your free will. It's your responsibility. And if you can't pull it out, that's on you. And you go to hell because of you. The biblical data is both. <laughs> isn't that like the Bible? The Bible always is mysterious like that, isn't it? You know, you have... Is God providential? Is, is, is He sovereign? Does He do everything? Or is it me? I'm saying it's both. And that's always a little less defined, isn't it? Think of Jesus. In His own person, He's a mystery, is He not? God and yet man? His mind can only understand certain things and remember certain things, and yet He knows everything? He has to be hailed as a baby because he can't even walk and yet he holds the universe together? If that's not a mystery, I don't know what a mystery is. It's a great mystery. It's a mystery of our faith. That God is both transcendent. He's not the world. He's not a tree. He's not the rain. He's not in here trapped with us. And yet, He's imminent. He's right here in this room. Mystery. The first thing Paul mentions here is this term that we pray for ourselves a lot, at least I do, is blessing. I don't know many people that don't pray for blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It brings me back to Abraham, who many would regard the father of monotheism. For all three of the monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all hold him as the starter the founder, so to speak, the first one of their religion, Abraham. That's why I'm calling him Father Abraham. Father Abraham, have many sons. Yeah, I, I, I just did that the other day. Apparently, my kids have never heard that. I guess that's my fault. And so I, I started. I broke out and sang it, you know, and started doing the one arm thing. Father Abraham, have many sons. Many sons, you know. And then left arm, then all, and then you're spinning around, you know, doing the whole thing, and then sit down, right? Father Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? He says something very simple. He says, I'm going to bless you. And man, you're thinking, hallelujah. That's what I've been praying for all the time, right? Blessing. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you can be a blessing to 30 people? To your family only? No, He said to all nations. So Abraham is elected, 
chosen by God specifically, only Him. He was the only one chosen to leave His country and go to a land that God would show Him and be blessed to be a blessing for all families. So because God chose this one family, all families are now blessed. This may be a bad illustration. It's the one that always helps me though. And so I have to only give you what can help me. I don't know what would help you. I can't get in your head. Think of a water hose. If I'm trying to get all of you guys wet, say that the water is the blessing, right? You know, it's been 70 degrees almost out there, so we're not far from summer thinking getting wet. Okay? Think of a water hose. If, if I keep the, the little spout on the end like it is, am I going to be able to really get all of you wet just with that one little stream coming out? No. No. But if I put the right spout on there, you know, the one that really sprays it out, I think it's called on mine where you turn it flood. You know, that's when I use to wash my car because it gets the most water out there in the most area. Well, I'm going to be able to get all you guys wet and, and aiming it still straight ahead. Everybody's going to be wet. I think election acts like that. I think God's choosing of Abraham was him putting a spout on the end of the water hose of blessing in order that all people could be sprayed with blessing. In so many words. That's what he did also with Israel, isn't it? He uses this one family, Abraham, but then he turns to an entire nation and says, I'm going to raise up my own nation. I mean, God had a nation. He had a kingdom, which was Israel. He called him his firstborn son. Not the only begotten son again, but his firstborn. They were firstborn among another kingdom, which is the kingdom we participate in now, the kingdom of God. So you have a family that moves to a nation. Then interestingly, you move to an individual Jesus Christ in God's plan. So in God's story, He starts with Abraham and his family. So a family moving to a nation, then to an individual, one person who is Jesus Christ. Who Paul says here is really the center of this whole thing. That family was pointing to Jesus. That nation was pointing to Messiah, Christ. And now, Christ comes as the elected one. He is God's one and only way in the world. He's he's elected. He's also the elector. And when we get close to Him... We become the elect. It's like what Paul is saying. We were predestined. We had a ticket already lined up to fly out on this day. Predestined to be like Jesus Christ. To be found in Jesus Christ. That's what, that, 
That's why humanity was created, was to be in God. He always wanted to be in fellowship with us. He didn't need us. God doesn't need anything as we've already established. He doesn't need anything. And yet, out of an overflow and an overabundance of love, He creates us. It's not out of necessity. Jessica and I didn't out of necessity have children. We weren't sitting around saying, you know, our marriage is falling apart. This is a disaster. We have got to do something. Let's have kids. Because that would probably be the worst thing you could do. It is weighed on our marriage at times. It's weighed on our soul at times. We were, we were speaking yesterday. We had, had a, a, a date during the day because my, my parents took the children. I was, you know, we were just musing, thinking, how much have we changed because of children? You know, these, these little men. How much has it actually changed us? Because <laughs> if you knew us back in the day, you know, you'd be surprised. Now, some things remain the same, you know. Uh, but they've changed us. We didn't have them because we needed them. We had children because of the love that we share. We wanted more of it. We wanted a house filled with love. We knew that we loved each other and we're going to remain with each other, and our love was so strong that we wanted to make it stronger. God, in a similar way, creates not out of necessity, but out of love. He loves what He has so much, He wants more of it. And now we have a house that when, we, when Jessica and I walk in and there's nobody there but us, we think, man, what a, what a dump. What an empty place. And all of a sudden when they got back, we're like, can they leave? When, when's the next time somebody's keeping them? You know, It's this constant back and forth. But it's a lively house, trust me. From, from 6 a.m. to 8 o'clock at night, it's a lively house around our place. You know what? God looks at us as His children. He loves us. Even with all the work of changing stinky diapers and running kids around here to there and trying to take care of them and trying to provide for them, you know what? We love it. Interestingly enough, we love it. That's why we got four guys, you know? You know what? God loves taking care of us. He does. He likes to take care of us. We often think to ourselves, you know, God sees me just as some utter failure. He sees me as somebody just bumbling through life. No. He sees you as a child. He sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter of Himself. I don't look at my kids even when they disobey. I don't look at my kids even when they fail. Even when they don't know what's going on. I don't look at them and say, what a bumbling idiot. And yet that's the way we think God looks at us. He doesn't. He looks at us as a masterpiece. Because when I look at these little guys here, I think to myself, I know what they can become one day. I know they're not there yet. They're not even close. You know, blaring angry birds at the end of a prayer, that's not even close. But you know what? 
I can see and I can foresee what they can become. Doesn't that change the perspective about the way you look at somebody? I mean, even your coworkers. If you look at them just for what they have done in the past, boy, that can be very negative. Or maybe what your spouse has done in the past, that can be very negative. What about what God can make them if you keep praying for them? If you keep sharing love, if you keep speaking words of kindness into their... What could God do with that kind of thing? Isn't that what He does with us? Holds us by the hand, even when we skin our knees? It is what He does with us. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. But notice this. In His plan, you go from individual, Abraham, to group, Israel, individual, Jesus, to group, the church. So the Old Testament, you're looking at Abraham, individual, Moses, individual, but also Israel is what we're to be a part of in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is the individual who's elected to be the spout And who is getting blessed is the church. So it's this individual slash corporate tension. And that's really where the arguments start flaring up with predestination, with election, with Calvinism, with Reformed theology. This is where it all begins to come because there's different emphasis. Is this only God who's doing this? Or is is the spout himself important? Is the individual important or is it just the group? Is it the one or the many? And again, I'm saying it's both. Hold the tension. Think of the Holy Trinity. He, at one time, is one and many. One person, sorry, one, three persons, one God. One God in three persons. Mystery. And yet we're meant to hold that as our faith. It's why I'm constantly fascinated by God. You can't get tired of God. He's too big to get tired of. He's too great to get tired of. You know, you look at certain marriages that have lasted... I mean, I've got... Both my grandparents were married over 60 years. Both of them. It's a long time to spend with someone every night. You figure, oh, surely you get tired of somebody. But no, because persons are inexhaustible. You can't exhaust a person. That's something you're not going to be able to do. Now, you can exhaust you know, knowledge of a Corvette. You can learn everything there is to know about a Corvette to where a machine really won't surprise you. Software program... It's going to run like you tell it to. If there's a problem, there's a reason. With people, boy, that's a different ball game. We are not just machines. We are not robots. It may be easier if we were, but we're not. We're this mix between machine and free will. Order and utter chaos. People never cease to surprise you. In good and bad ways. And God is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Never gets old. 
never gets boring serving and following Him. We're the ones that get tired and old. G.K. Chesterton put it best, and it remains in my mind as really one of the greatest. He said, the sun doesn't come up because it's some kind of mechanical response or law in the universe that's determining that the sun must come up. I mean, there's no mechanic thing there. The sun comes up because God tells it to come up. He says, we get tired of this world because we are growing old. God is like a little child. If there's one thing that children do that you know in this church, you know, if if Uncle Bob, for instance, puts him on his knee and does the rodeo thing, what do they say afterward? Do they say, I'm really tired of that, Uncle Bob. I wish you'd do something different today. No, they don't. What do they say? Again, again, again. You know, if they're young. Or, do it again, do it again. You know, constant. They could do one thing all day long. All day long. Why? Because they're still enjoying life. They're, they're mesmerized. How can you, you know, do it? They love it. And he says, G.K. Joseph says, why does God continue to produce tulips? Because He loves them so much. He can't get past it. He can't stop doing that one thing that He loves. Why does the sun come up every day? Because He says, do it again. Do it again. We're the ones getting old and tired because of sin. When God is young with life and joy. We've been blessed in Jesus. And in His church is where we witness about His blessing. So notice this. Abraham is elected to be a blessing to all nations. How, do they, how does God perform that? It's through Israel. Jesus is elected to bless all people. And how does, where is the witness of that in the, in the world? In the church. That's our job is to be witnesses of that person. So who did Israel always point back to? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's who. Who does the church always point back to? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of Christianity. The very center. In other words, you say, well, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Do you obey Jesus? Because if you don't, you're not a follower of His. How could you be if you don't obey Him? You're a follower of yourself. You trust yourself over Him. I mean, I'm not making that up. That's just the way it is. Jesus says, if you love Me, then what? Obey My commands. If we're not obeying, then we're obviously serving, following a disciple of someone else. Jesus is the center. And we must, as the church, be His witnesses. He's chosen us in Christ, Paul says, to be blameless and to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to share in the very nature of God. You ever met somebody and you say, man, that's just a good-natured guy or gal. And when you're around them, they just make you feel good about yourself. They have a very good nature about them. 
We're all meant to share in that type of good nature. It doesn't mean we're all going to be extroverts. What it means is we were created to share in God's very nature. So whatever God is like, that's what we're meant to be like. What did Bob share with us Thursday? The fruits of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes into our life, what do we do with that? Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate you giving me that. Alright, let me go back to my real life now. No. No. Share in what the Spirit has to offer to you. There is another that comes to live in us in order to change us. From the inside out. Not from the other way around. So it means it will start where people can't see. And it will end with something people can see. They'll see the change. You can't make the change. It's not about, alright, New Year's resolution, New Year's resolution. Let me pull myself up by my bootstraps. No. It's not going to get it done. There is a response on your part, and that is to repent and to trust. All of this is made available in Christ only. It's exactly what Paul says here. He says, in Him, five different times here. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. Why? And and multiple times throughout Ephesians and even elsewhere in his writings. Because Jesus is our center. Many of us have gotten lost in a movie before. I don't mean we can't find our way back. I mean, you're watching a movie and you're saying, what in the world is going on? There's certain movies that are meant to try to confuse you and lead you off into different paths so, so as to confuse you. You think, what's the, re- what, what's the real center here? What are they really trying to say? Let me tell you something. Here is the center of Christianity. It is not complex. It's Jesus Christ. He is the way itself. So God sends His way into the world. His way is Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that none would perish, but all would have life eternal. He gave us the way, and the way is a person. It's not a piece of paper. It's not a to-do list. It's a person. Jesus. He's the center. And we must abide in the center if we're ever going to be a witness. If we're ever going to be fruitful. If He's ever going to paint something beautiful with our life, we've got to let Him scrub away. And sometimes, it's interesting, I don't know about an artist, but they use these different things to kind of even rough up the painting. There's all kind of things that... And as he's working, we don't want to say, oh, hang on just a second, let me get my crayon out again. No. Let him prune us. Let him cut off what needs to be cut off. Stop doing what you know is wrong to do. Start doing what you know is right. Sounds simple, doesn't it? And yet all of us know how difficult that sinful nature is, and yet Paul says it can be put to death. We can serve God with our whole heart. Some things you have to start doing 
before you start liking it. In other words, you're not going to like it at first. But if you keep with it, you'll love it. You ever had something like that? You say, oh man, this is terrible. I hate this. I hate doing it. But then now, you enjoy it. You found enjoyment in it. Because it was the right thing to do. Saying no to sin and saying yes to God, it's like that. It's not always going to feel right. But it's the right thing to do. So let me ask you this morning. Do you know Jesus Christ? Not just about Him. Do you actually know Him? Is He Lord of your life? Do you know that you're a son, a daughter of Jesus? Of our Heavenly Father? Do you know that He approves of you? That He cares for you? That He loves you more than anybody in this room loves you? He's done so much as to become one of us. Die on a cross naked, spat upon, blasphemed, mocked. And He rose again. And now He prays for you. He's constantly... Th- Psalm 139 says, He thinks about us more than the sand on the sea. Sure. Think about that. We've all been to the beach. I mean, you know how one little thumb dot, there's a seems like a thousand granules on there. And you look across the whole beach, as far as the eye can see. That's how much He thinks about you. That's a good thing if He's the author, as 139 says. If He's the author of this story, and He's writing this thing out, please, Lord, write me in. Because as soon as you stop writing about me, that's it. If He's the playwriter, we're His actors in this story. Are we being obedient to the script? Are we the one who keeps tripping and botching and misspeaking? The reality is He's come to our very painting. He's come to our play to help us do it right. What are you really painting in your life? What's your story about? Is there a center to your story or are you spinning your wheels? Is there a center? It should be Jesus Christ. Is there a story? It should have at the center of it Jesus Christ. Are you disoriented this morning? You don't have to be any longer. You can come to Him. We've already prayed at this altar this morning, several of us this morning, before the service started. I would ask you at this point, I'm going to ask Rachel to come up and play for us. And this is an invitation for you to respond to Jesus. Not some idea about God. Not something I've said. Not something I've guilted you into. This is a place to respond to Jesus Himself. Would you do that? He is the center of Christianity. You're not Christian if He's not. It's just as simple as that. What do you want to paint in your life? What are you splashing on other people? Is it goodness? Is it light? Today He can fill you with kindness, mercy, goodness, gentleness, self-control. He can give you a spirit. He can fill you with love.
He can forgive you of anything you've done. What good news is that? It's good news meant to be accepted. Not just understood, but accepted. Will you come this morning?